we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-14. through 14. I'm going to go ahead and read this section to you and then we'll begin to break it down. Peter says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, as we bring this section of our study of 1 Peter to a close, I I wanted to deal with some of the verses that we dealt with last night. As you see, there's a little over, not last, last night, last week, there's a little bit of an overlap here. And uh, we looked last week briefly at Peter's warning about Satan and his desire to devour us. But I want to pull out a few things from this, though, for you. Remembering that that Satan cannot touch us without our Father's permission, there's some things we need to be reminded of. The first one is this. If you ever watch the wild animal shows, how many of you remember Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? That was my favorite one. I love that one. If you ever watch the wild animal shows, the lions go after those who have strayed from the herd. Right? They look for the weak. They look for those who stray from the herd. Hebrews chapter 10. Go there real quick. Bookmark in 1 Peter 5. Go to Hebrews. Just turn back a couple of books here. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 24 and 25. And please don't hear church attendance when I read this. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds... Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's an importance that God has designed for us to be together, to encourage each other. To, don't you look forward to coming here on Tuesday nights to see faces and people you've grown to know and love? We don't even go all to the same churches. And actually, that's probably what makes us like each other so much. <laughs> Seriously, there's a lot to that, folks, because you know what? We don't sit around and talk about church, do we? We don't sit around and talk about the latest decision by the leadership or how the vote went in business meeting. We ain't sitting around talking about whether or not we're meeting budget. All the stuff that get us sidetracked from what's most important. Because we're all a part of the body of Christ and from different local bodies, we get here together and we just talk about Jesus and each other and what God's doing. And this is the way it's supposed to be. But there's a tendency when we become discouraged. There's a tendency when we become weary, beat down, to what? Pull away. To isolate ourselves. It's a a temptation of the enemy. But the reason why the enemy tempts us to pull away and become isolated is because Satan goes after those who tend to pull themselves away. And so I just want to caution you. If Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, keeping in mind he cannot touch you without your father's permission, but if he's out there looking for someone to devour, if you pull yourself away from regular fellowship, not just Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, but regular fellowship with other believers, you become a target. You become a target of the enemy. 
Stay with the herd is right. And boy, I had a couple of buffalo jokes run through my head and I left them alone. I left them alone. Now, the second thing I want to pull out from this is this. God may at times point us out to Satan for his divine good purposes. Let me say that again. God may at times may point us out to Satan. Here it says he's looking for someone to devour. We're not going to turn there, but if you were to go back and look at the story of Job in chapter 1 and chapter 2, who was the one who pointed out Job to Satan? God did, both times. Remember Satan appeared before God when all the other angels had to appear before God? And God says, what you been up to? Of course, God knows. He says, roaming to and fro throughout the earth, and we know why he's roaming to and fro throughout the earth. He's looking for someone to devour. And God says, have you noticed Job? No. So if Satan has been allowed, remember, he cannot do anything to you without your father's permission. If he has been allowed to mess with you, if he's been allowed to attack you in some way, your father has allowed it and he's orchestrated it for his divine good purposes. I think you might need to spend some time with the father and say, what do you have in mind through this? We're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. The third thing I want to pull out from this, though, is this. You're not the only one that he's after right now. Doesn't he sometimes make us feel like we're the only one he's attacking? How many times have we thought that we're the only one? Sit in a room of all these other people and think that nobody else knows what I'm going through. Nobody else deals with what I'm dealing with. Go right ahead. Satan is the ultimate abuser. What do abusers do? They isolate the abused person from everyone else who could help them. That's correct. That's correct. I'm not going to have you turn there, but for the second time, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Remember it says that no temptation has seized you, but what? Such is common to man. You're not the only one going through it. You're not the only one. So don't let Satan lie to you then and say, well, you're the only one that's dealing with this. There are probably some other brothers in the room, some other sisters in the room, who are having some of the same kind of things, or God has walked them through it, and they can comfort you with the comfort they've received. Don't be afraid to share with people how you're feeling and what's going on. I actually shared at the Men in Motion today about some of the things that we may get into a little bit tonight that God has been doing in my life. And my message today to those men, I've been preaching to them for eight years, today was different because I just opened up today and shared some of the struggles and some of the concerns and some of the things God's been teaching me as I have become worried about the future. And we look today at the fact that Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, each day has enough trouble of its own. The problem is, we want a life without trouble. But Jesus said, each day, did you catch that? Each day is going to have trouble. We don't want trouble. Yeah, Jesus has already said it's going to have trouble. And not only that, there's sufficient trouble for each day, is what the actual Greek says. And then ironically enough, God began to open my eyes. So here we are, not wanting trouble. Jesus said that each day is going to have trouble. And then what do we do? We worry about all the things that might happen down the road. And the people that don't want trouble are borrowing trouble from the future onto the day. Isn't that kind of silly? We don't want trouble, but we add to our trouble. Jesus says each day has enough trouble. But you know what? It was good for me today. It was good for me today to not be out there and just challenge and encourage and, and, and speak, but to just get up and say, here's what's going on. Here's what God's talking to me about. And I'm in the midst of it. I didn't preach from the other side. I preached from the midst of it today. And you know what? Afterwards, brothers came alongside of me. Some even took me aside to just pray with me. 
No one gave me a pat on the back and a glib, you know, phrase, God's good, all the time, all the time, God's good. No, no. They just said, you know what? It's good to hear that you're like me. Can I pray for you? You need that too. He says, what did Peter say? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5 here. Look what he says. He says, you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same things. Sad thing is, nowadays, the way we've designed our church life, we would never know it. We would never know it, would we? Because we put on our nicest clothes, we paint our faces, and we come into church and we put on that smile, we sing the peppy song, we give our offering, we walk out of the door shaking the pastor's hand saying, I enjoyed that. And we all walk home just as lonely and hurting as we ever were. And we miss out on what God has designed for us to be. Well, I'll say it again. Stick with the herd, folks. Stick with the herd. Oh, it doesn't mean that you're going to mesh with everybody in your local fellowship, but I can guarantee you there's some people that you do mesh with. Get with them. Meet together regularly in each other's homes. Encourage each other, especially as we get closer to the return of Christ. Also, you don't resist Satan by rolling over and playing dead. That doesn't work with him. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to stand firm in your faith. And we're not going to turn there because we've got a lot to cover tonight. But remember what James says, faith without action is not real faith. You're going to stand firm against Him. You're not to go attack Him. You are not to go and, and, and command Him. You are not to have dominion. There are those people that say, I bind you, Satan. You don't have that power. There's only one who has that power. The Bible says we are to submit ourselves to the one who has the power. And we are to resist Him, stand firm in our faith. But don't fall prey to those teachers out there that say you have the ability to have dominion over Him. We saw in our study of the book of Hebrews that even though everything was put under Jesus' feet, He has not exercised full dominion yet, has He? If He was exercising full dominion, Satan would be already bound and in the pit. So don't start falling prey to some false theology that because of Jesus you have dominion over Satan. No, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The angels were even afraid to bring accusation and rebuke Him. But said, the Lord rebuke you. If the angels are afraid to attack Him in that way, you should not fall prey to bad theology that says you have dominion to bind Satan. No, you submit yourself to God. You stand firm in the faith. And He will leave, but it has nothing to do with you. Some of you have heard me share this. I shared this about four or five years ago. But years ago when I was in college, I was on the basketball team at Flagler and I had a roommate in the, in the dorm with me who was on the basketball team with me and he was six foot six, 260 pounds and after he left college, he became a professional wrestler. He was a very big man. He was my roommate. And one day we were down on the bottom floor of our dorm and there was a lot of noise going on outside the dorm. Our, our, our dorm was just on the outskirts of the campus. Actually, it was a city street. was just beyond the window. And these high school kids were out there throwing rocks and doing all sorts of stuff. And my roommate opened the window, yelled out, Hey, boy, knock it off! And they heard, he heard from outside, There are boys out here if you want to do something about it. My roommate, being a big guy and not afraid of anything, turned to me and said, Jim, let's go. We're going to fight him. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know me, I've never been in a fight in my life. Well, I've been beat up a few times, but I've never been in a fight in my life. I'm not a fighter. I'm just, 
I've never hit anybody. Well, I, I hit a girl one time in, in tenth grade. But besides that girl, I've never, I've never hit anybody. And I turned to my roommate Bob and I said, Bob, I can't. I, I ain't going out there with you and fight. He said, You got a choice. You either come with me and fight them now, or when I'm done with them, I'm gonna come take care of you. Let's go, Bob. I am not kidding you. I went out the door behind Bob like this. And when they saw the size of him, they took off. And of course I went, yeah, we took care of them. He ain't running from you, folks. Satan will leave because of Jesus. You need to stand firm. And not only that, look at what Peter says. Uh, Look at verse uh, 12. He talks about how with the help of Silas, and we'll get to that in a little bit. The second half of verse 12, he says, This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. You stand firm in what God has said, and you stand firm in His promise. You heard me say at the beginning, uh, before we started the recording, that I'm going to take a little trip with Becky just for a couple of days to get away. You know... In the midst of all the things that are happening in our life right now, many could say, this is not a good time. There's still a lot of paperwork to get done for your parents. There are still a lot of things that need to be taken care of. And you should wait until you get everything taken care of, and then you take your break. And I honestly was wrestling with that. Becky will tell you. Last night I was saying, should we even go? And I went away and I spent some time with the Lord. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And this is what I heard Him tell me. He said, Jim, I want you to take this trip in faith. And I want you to trust me that I will, in your obedience to what I'm saying, I will multiply the time when you get back and more will be accomplished if you will do what is stupid and leave in the middle of all this and do what I tell you. And folks, I'm standing firm in faith in what he's said. And I'm going to enjoy it. She's threatening outlet malls, though. So, I know I have the prayer of the men in the room. That's all I'm saying. Alright, I really want to take a look now, though. I want to take a look at verses 10 and 11. And I really want us to break this down slowly here. Look closely at verses 10 and 11. Peter, who like Paul knew that God works all things out for the good of those who love Him or are called according to God's purpose. He had the end result of suffering in mind when he wrote verses 10 and 11. I'm going to say that again. Peter, who like Paul, knew that God works all things out for the good of those who love Him or the called according to God's purpose. He, he had an, the end result of suffering in mind when Peter wrote verses 10 and 11. And he says, "...in the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ..." After you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast, to Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We're going to break these two verses down in great detail because if you just read it fast, you will miss what's really here. The first thing I want to point out to you is He describes God as the God of all grace. And not many of us really understand what this means. And I want to take some time to kind of pull that out. See, we receive God's grace when He gives us what we need in order to live and obey Him in this life. You see, apart from God giving us what we need, we can't do anything. Can you save yourself? No, you need God's grace in order to be saved. We're not going to turn there. You know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace... 
that you have been saved. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. You have to understand. What I want you to hear, as Peter says, and the God of all grace will do what these things He's promised for you. The restoring, the making firm, and steadfast, and so on. Strengthening. You have to understand, in order to have what you need, you need Jesus to do it all. See, many of us understand we need God's grace for salvation, but many of us have been unfortunately told by the preachers that it's up to us now to do stuff. I want to show you scripturally that everything that God wants you to do and everything He wants to accomplish through you, He knows you can't do it apart from Him giving you the grace and Him doing it. We all like to quote John 15, chapter chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. But many of us, most of us, still live our lives as if it's up to us. So the God of all grace gives us grace for salvation. Do you know you need His grace to say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil? You can't even say no to Satan apart from His grace. Go to James chapter 4. Put it again. Keep your bookmark in, in, in 1 Peter. Go to James chapter 4 and look at verses uh, 6 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. James starts this off by saying, but he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In this passage, right before what we read, James is dealing with people who have a friendship with the world. And he says, don't you realize that that's enmity toward God? If you're a friend of the world, and if you're living as the world does, if you think what the world thinks is cool is cool, you're an enemy, become an enemy of God. But He gives us more grace. You need to stand firm against Satan. You need to submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. You need God's grace to do it. You can't do it. Why do you think Jesus spent so much time praying, folks? Oh, He was just teaching us. Oh, oh no. It's definitely, we can learn from Him, that's for sure. But the reason why Jesus spent so much time praying was He knew because of the role that He had been given, because He had humbled Himself. He did not claim Godhood, as Philippians chapter 2 says. He didn't didn't claim and grasp equality with God. But He humbled Himself and He took on the role of a servant and He lived in the flesh, in the human body, in the same way in which you and I live now. He yielded Himself to the Father and His plan and His his will and He submitted Himself. He learned obedience through what He suffered and Jesus knew that He needed to continually seek the Father for the Father's grace to live obediently. He didn't do it because He was God. He was God. But he lived in a human body like yours and mine. And he submitted and sought the Father's grace. Submitted to and sought the Father's grace at all times. That's why in John chapter 5 he says, The Son can do nothing by himself. Did you catch that? Wait a minute, he's God! No, he limited himself. And he submitted himself to the grace that he needed from the Father. You need God's grace for salvation. You need His grace to say no to the flesh and the devil. You need God's grace to give of your spiritual and material riches. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. 
Look closely here. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Who's doing all this? God is. He's the one that provides seed. He's the one that provides bread. He's the one that supplies what you need. He's the one that's going to enlarge your heart, your, your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, before I read any more, how often do we say, I would love to give. I just don't have it. I would love to meet that need, not just financially, but in whatever way. But I just can't. You're right. You can't. And you're not supposed to. But the God who puts it on your heart will give you the grace. He will give you the grace. But you have to be willing to believe what He's promised and step out in faith. Listen to what He goes on and says in verse 12, This service so that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing what? Grace that God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Folks, I'm going to burn this into your brain as much as I can, and I pray the Spirit is the one who actually makes it to stick. When Peter said, may the God of all grace, or the God of all grace will, he was saying something I don't want you to miss. Everything you need to be firm, steadfast, strengthened, restored, God has to do it. You don't just make up your mind to do better. You don't just make up your mind to feel better. No, you need to say, God, I can't. But you said you would. And I believe it. And I ask you to do it right now. And I'm asking in faith and I believe you will. And you watch what God does. You watch what God does. But you've got to believe that what He said and you stand firm. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Therefore, in and through your suffering, God will give you what you need. And by His grace, He will accomplish His purposes for you if you stand strong in active faith. So what does He promise to do then? Let's go back to 1 Peter 5. What does God promise to do? Well, the first thing we see here is that He's promised to restore us. Do you see it? Yeah, well, perfect. And we're going to pull out the great Greek word here. This word translated here in this translation, restore, or yours perfect, is actually the, the Greek word that means it's used for setting a fractured bone or for 
it was used also in Mark chapter 1, I'll turn there, but Mark chapter 1 verse 19 uh, to describe when they're mending their nets. It's fixing something that's broken. Alright? It means to supply what was missing or to mend that which was broken. Do you realize that the Bible's then saying here that God uses our suffering to mend what was broken? It's interesting. We always think He uses our suffering to break us. And so I've always seen it. Use my suffering to break me. So that you can mend me. No, He does a whole lot more than that. He uses the suffering to make you stronger. How many of you have ever lifted weights? You know anything about lifting weights? In order to get your muscles bigger and stronger, what do you have to do? You have to tear them. You actually have to get to a point where you lift more weight than your muscle can handle. And what happens is, those little microfibers tear. That's why it hurts. After you've had a workout, you're like, man, I can't hardly lift my arms. Well, the reason is, you've torn your muscle slightly. It's not like you've had a major, major tear. I remember one time I actually had a micro tear in my calf when I was playing basketball one day. And I thought that I had just ripped my calf muscle off. I fell down and I was in agony and I couldn't even hardly drive home. I went to the doctor and said, Doctor, I have torn my calf muscle. He laughed. He said, only the super, super athletes can tear a muscle like that. And he said, by looking at you, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. He said, all you had was a micro tear. Hurts like the Dickens, doesn't it? Yeah. He said, it was just a micro tear. But when you lift weights and you tear the muscle... God has designed it that all of a sudden in its healing process, it is restored. But not only just restored, it becomes stronger than it was before. Oh yeah, God does use your suffering to break you down. He does cause us to hunger so that He can feed us. But at the same time, it's through the suffering that you may not realize it, He's actually restoring you. He's mending. He's taking what was broken and making it better than it was before. Do we feel like it at the time? Of course not. Those of you who've ever lifted weights, you get embarrassed because you can't even hardly lift a teacup afterwards. And you think, all right, no, I'll be stronger. But you actually are. In time, you become stronger. So what I want to do real quick is I want to have us look at some passages in the Scripture that talk about this. Go to Psalm 51. Look at verse 12. What does David say here? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He doesn't say, God, I'm going to have a more willing spirit. He says, I need you to give me a more willing spirit. But he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why was David asking for the joy of his salvation to be restored? He'd lost it. It'd been broken. God, I need you to mend what was broken. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Some of you need to spend some time with God and ask Him to restore the joy of your salvation. There's another place, Galatians chapter 6. We're not going to have you turn there, but that's chapter 6 verse 1. It says, if you see your brother in a fault, you who are spiritual are to what? Restore them gently. You are to lovingly, by the grace of God, Mend what was broken. Go to Psalm 23. You're in Psalm 51 there. Just back up to Psalm 23. And look at verse 3. It said, He restores my soul. 
Now folks, I don't know if you understand this or not, but this restoring process, it ain't going to happen when you just hear a sermon. I hope you do understand that. As much as I would love it to be that way, I sure wish I could just preach a message to you and you'd say, Jim, thanks, I'm all better. It doesn't work like that. If sermons could fix us, the United States church would be super church. We've had plenty of sermons. We've had plenty of messages. But the only way you're going to really experience this restoration is to go and spend time alone with the Father and seek His restoration. Oh, and He's not in a hurry. You ever notice the fact that Jesus sometimes spent all night in prayer? I want to be restored, but I'd sure like not to lose any of my sleep in the process. I'd like to be restored, but could He do it before my TV show comes on? If you want to become one of these kind of Christians, the God of all grace is available to you. But you're going to have to learn to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him daily. But folks, let me just tell you, what He wants to do in and through us is far greater than anything you could see on TV. Or even some cat on the internet that's dancing and playing the piano. He's not only promised to restore us, He's promised to make us strong. He said that He's promised to strengthen us. This word actually means to put strength into. As we talked about, the suffering produces growth. It's the tearing of the muscle, like I said, that makes the muscle bigger and stronger. But go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 through 17. Look at how Paul puts it there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 17. Now look closely how again how it's worded. The more you really start to look at the scripture in this way, the more you'll see all along it's been saying that God has to do it all. Paul says, "But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord." Because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Here it is again. And hold on to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may He encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. What are we supposed to do? Same thing we've been seeing all along. We're to stand firm in what He said. We're to believe His Word. We're to believe His promise. And we're to seek God for His grace in whatever it is we need. And God of all grace will give you whatever you need for every good work. One of the things He's promised to do is to strengthen us. May God strengthen you. You need to spend some time and say, Lord, I need it. I need your strength. But too many of us have been taught to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, haven't we? Buck up. Have a stiff upper lip. No. Remember there were two people praying. One was proud, braggadocious. The other one didn't even dare look to heaven and said, have mercy. And which one got their prayer answered, Jesus said? One that humbled himself and said, I need you. 
I need you. Let me show you one other place. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul just talked about this person that was either in the body or out of the body. He wasn't sure, taken into the throne room of God, if you will, and seen paradise. He says in verse 7, "...to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me." By the way, did you catch that? He didn't say this happened because I wandered from the herd. Sometimes it does happen that way. He said, this was given me. Right? Actually, my translation says uh, Duke when it says thorn. But, uh, but uh, it was giving me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But He said to me, no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. By the way, did you hear what I said just a few minutes ago when I was talking about Matthew 6.34, where the Greek translation is sufficient for the day is the evil? And then Jesus says what? My grace is sufficient. Folks, you need strength. You need to admit your weakness. And He will give you strength. You think you don't need it? You think you're supposed to be strong and the Lord will honor your strength? You're going to miss out because He opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. I heard a preacher about, I don't know, 10, 10, 11 years ago, preach a sermon that is stuck in my head. He's preaching about Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And he talked about Jacob wrestling with God, and how in that wrestling match with God, God touched his hip and put it out of joint, and he walked with a limp the rest of his life. And this preacher made this statement that has stuck with me. He said, never follow any spiritual leader who doesn't walk with a limp. He said, if that spiritual leader acts like they've got it all together, that they've got the key, they've got the clue, they've got the formula, if they don't walk with a limp, he said, don't follow that person. They've not wrestled with God. But you see someone that is broken, who admits their weakness. See, before that, Jacob was in control of all his circumstances, but when he met God, he walked with a limp the rest of his life. Never follow a spiritual leader who doesn't walk with a limp. Hopefully you're someone that understands your weakness. And people see it. There's nothing wrong with saying... I need God every single day. Third thing He's promised us. Go to 1 Peter again. First, third thing He's promised is this. He's promised to make us firm. Now this doesn't mean around the midsection. I wish it did. But actually the Greek word means to make as solid as granite. Now there's an interesting 
way that this word has also been used in the Bible. Um, go to Luke chapter 9. We're back in 1 Peter chapter 5. Oh, where I just left was in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul asked for God to remove the thorn. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. But here now in, uh, um, in Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51. Luke 9, verse 51, you'll see this exact same word, that, the same Greek word that is translated, translated to make firm. But you might not see it if someone didn't point it out to you, because I would have never saw it. It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, As the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some of your translations, King James says, He set His face toward Jerusalem. This word, meaning firm, is one who has been made firm and is not wishy-washy. They cannot be convinced to change their mind. You see what I'm saying? When Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem or set His face toward Jerusalem, there was no stopping Him. He was going to Jerusalem. Why? Because He had to go to Jerusalem. He had to go there to die. And if you were to follow Jesus from that point on, you'll see Him run into all different circumstances and scenarios and situations that have come. But He kept, even as He dealt with those, He kept going to Jerusalem. The Bible says that God, the God of all grace, will make us that firm. We're solid as granite. We are resolute. We are not going anywhere. We are convinced and nothing will change our minds. We're keeping our eyes on Him. Now, have you ever had times where you doubted? Confession is good for the soul. If anybody sits here and says, not me, you ain't walking with a limp yet. Because even John the Baptist, even John the Baptist questioned whether or not Jesus was the one. And folks, if John the Baptist can question, don't think for a second, you won't have questions. We all have times that we question. We all have times that the enemy says, are you sure? Is he really the Christ? Even Satan came at Jesus that way. Have you ever thought about that? Satan came at Jesus in the temptation of the wilderness and said, If you are the Christ. Jeff, go ahead. The parallel part in Mark says, Jesus headed toward Jerusalem and all the disciples were behind him. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they were like, why is he going? Last time he was there, they were trying to kill him. But he had made up his mind. I'm going now. It's time to die. You're right. But folks, we all go through times where we question. We doubt. We worry. We wonder. And we're tempted to turn back. But you know what's interesting? I think of the two men on the road to Emmaus. They had believed. They were even there when the women came back and said, He's risen from the dead. And they got discouraged and they weren't so sure. And discouraged and dejected, they headed back to Emmaus, the seven-mile walk. And as they were on their way back, guess who showed up? Guess who lovingly excuse me, chased them down. And they said, you know, we had thought He was the one. Maybe some of our women came and said that He's risen, but we don't know. But Jesus made them firm. 
And those two guys, after dark, ran seven miles. That'll get your belly firm too, but that's not what I'm talking about. They ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem. And what did they say when they ran in the room? It's true. Excuse me. How did they go from wishy-washy to saying it's true? They heard the Word of God and Jesus made them firm. You, you, you questioning? You doubting? Don't listen to the preacher says, stop doubting and just get, get on with it. Don't listen to the preacher says, you have to do better than that. How dare... No. Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because apart from you giving it to me, I can't work it up on my own. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. I use that expression, well, I try, I try. I mean, we're so guilty of that. Don't we say that? I try, I try. Yeah. That, that's the problem. Stop trying. And trust. Go ahead. I think that uh, we have to remember that every word in the Bible is the Word of God. If it fails, God Himself has failed. From the day you wake up and you find out that the Word of God not only is the Word, but it has power and impact, <coughs> is the day uh, you then, the Word of God actually has power in your life. I mean, it is unbelievable. So you're saying the red parts aren't more the Word of God than the, the black parts? <laughs> you ever thought about that, folks? The red words are the words of Jesus. They're all the words of Jesus. They're all the words of Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. <coughs> Rist, resist Him, standing what? Firm. Firm. In the faith. Thank you. You can bring me some water. I actually swallowed a bug. A little bug flew by. And it, I saw it go in, but it, it did not come out. Go to Hebrews, go to Hebrews chapter 6. <coughs> Unfortunately, no. Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verses 13 through 20, verse A, if you will, or the first half of verse 20. Hebrews chapter 6. Listen to verses 13 through the first part of 20. It says, When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, He swore by Himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. It says, men swear by someone greater than themselves when the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, (coughs) we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus went, so for Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. We have God's Word, as you just said, Jim, as an anchor for our souls. Firm. You want to be resolute? You want to be convinced? You've got to not believe God's Word. That sounds crazy. Stick with me here. You want to be firm? You want to be resolute? You've got to believe first that this is God's Word. See, there are those people who say, well, I believe God's Word, but I don't believe this. I believe God said this, but I don't believe that part. 
That's one of the problems with people in the church today is we're getting to pick what's the Word of God and what's not the Word of God. You can't be resolute. You can't be firm if you only think parts of this are God's Word. You have to be willing to accept that this all is the Word of God. Then you can believe the Word of God. You understand what I'm saying? You've got to first settle whether or not this book is there. People say, well, you you only believe that because... Yes, that's true. I only believe that because God said it. And I may look stupid, I may look uneducated to you, but in time you're going to find out that actually the Bible's been right all along. Back when people were arguing over whether or not the world was flat or round, the Bible had long prior to that said that God sits above the circle of the earth. Folks, let me just tell you, back when um, Abraham was told, count the stars if you can, people would say, well, that's easy enough, we can count them. But the more we've gotten telescopes and Hubble telescopes, we've come to find out, oh dip, we'll never be able to count them all. The Bible's been right all along. And I'm just going to challenge you in this day in which even those who claim to follow Christ will question whether or not all of it is true. You need to be firm, but the only way you'll be firm is if you believe that this is all God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at that real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 21 and 22. Memorize this verse, please. Get it in your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Do you see it? He has anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You want to stand firm? You need God for him to make you firm. You need God to make you firm. Oh, and He has all the grace you need for everything you need. He's also promised to establish us. Back in 1 Peter chapter 5, He's promised to establish us or to make us steadfast, some of your translations say. This Greek word actually means to lay the foundation. Now, hopefully we all know who the foundation is, right? The foundation of our faith and our life and everything is Jesus Christ. Your faith must not, listen closely, your faith must not rest in anything else. Not in your money, not in your good works, not in your heritage, not in your denomination, not in your own faith. I have faith. That's not what the Bible says your faith is supposed to be in. Your faith is not to be in your faith, but it is to be in Christ. I don't have faith in my faith. I have faith in Jesus Christ. And my faith is not in my faith. There's lots of people who have a lot of faith. Because of their faith, it causes them to do some crazy stuff, like strap bombs to themselves and go into a crowd. By the way, they do that because of their faith. But if your faith is not grounded and rooted in truth, your faith is worthless. You can have faith, but I don't care how much faith you have. If it's not rooted in truth... It's not going to do you any good. So you can't say, well, I have faith. No, 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 no. You have to have faith in Christ and what He said. You want to be steadfast? You want to be established? You need to be settled on the foundation. Oh, and again, like you've heard me say before, 
The Bible says very clearly that the only ones who are truly settled in the foundation of Jesus are the ones that believe that Jesus is God. Not a son of God, although he's that as well. Not an emanation from God, but God. Not that he became God, but that he's always been God. That's why John says in in 1 John, you want to know the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of lies or error? Those who say that Jesus is God, that God has come in the flesh, are the ones who speak the truth. And there are those in this world today who claim Christianity who do not believe that Jesus is God Himself. Be careful of anybody like that. You want to have the real foundation laid, not a foundation laid in someone who's pretending to be Jesus. Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to see these couple of verses. These are pretty cool. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And if you don't listen faster, we may not finish 1 Peter chapter 5. First Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Please listen closely. For this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power, there's one of His promises, strengthened, with power, through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. He said, Jim, I thought we were supposed to be established in Jesus, not in love. God is love, folks. That you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you all, did you catch that? Not just the preachers. That you all may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul praying? That we would know Christ and be rooted and established in Jesus. And in doing so, we'll get to know His love. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, um, Hinduism, that foundation was laid during time. Correct? Buddhism, that foundation, which is not a real foundation, was laid during time. Islam was laid, not only during time, Islam wasn't, that foundation wasn't even laid until the church had been around for 600 years. We're not talking Judaism, we're talking the church had been around for 600 years when Islam came on the scene and that foundation was laid. Do you know when the foundation of Jesus was laid? Before the creation of the world, before time. Folks, don't let anybody tell you they're all the same. They're not. I know this doesn't make us popular. I know in this day and age where everybody's trying to coexist or being told to coexist. You've seen the bumper stickers. That'll make you unpopular. Folks, I'm not telling you to be rude. I'm telling you to be firm. 
And ask God for that firmness. Ask His grace to make you steadfast and resolute and strong. And if you need to be restored, seek Him. You see, all this is accomplished by Jesus and not us. Peter ends this section with a praise of God's power. He says, to Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. You see, God takes the broken and restores them. God takes the weak and strengthens them. God takes the wishy-washy and makes them firm. And God takes the floundering and establishes them. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says, Now, through Him and to Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm not going to have for the sake of time turn there, but in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, describing Jesus, talks about how He'd been there before the creation of the world, but it also talks about how everything exists through Him. Folks, stop trying to be strong and come to Jesus to receive His grace. Again, Peter repeats that in verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Now it appears that Silas was, was writing what Peter told him. You see there in verses 12 and following, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. Now, chances are real strong that Silas was the one who actually did the writing while Peter spoke it. But at the same time, um, in many letters, Paul would finish the letter in his own handwriting. He even says that in one, one of the books. And there's a chance that this section here, verses 12 through 14, was written by Peter in his handwriting. But he also says that John Mark was there as well. Verse 13, you see that. Now, some of you are wondering, because there's a great debate as to where is this Babylon? Because it says in verse 13, See who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark, and so on. And I'm going to be honest with you, if you were to take the time and study this, you would find that there's many speculations as to where this Babylon was. Some say, well, maybe it was the Babylon in in Egypt. Maybe it was the Babylon Babylon. They are on the river Euphrates. There are others who say, well, Babylon's a code word for Rome. It's interesting, they always love to quote back from Revelation and how Revelation said that Babylon was a code word for Rome and... Revelation wasn't even written until many, many years, 30 years after this. Let me just put this to you. We don't know. I don't know where this Babylon is. But we can get so focused on the picture side of the postcard, we're going to miss what was written on the other side. You see, when someone sends you a postcard from somewhere, there's one side that's got the picture of where they're from and where they're at. Hey, here's the pictures of the palm trees we're seeing or whatever it is. But on the other side, they have their greeting and what they wanted you to hear from them. We spend so much time in theology circles and scholarly circles trying to argue over and win our point as to what Babylon was. Let me just say this. We missed the other side of the postcard. Peter sent a greeting from the church. She who is in Babylon, wherever Babylon is, and I have my opinions, but I don't know. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. Did you catch that? Peter's saying, brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe, tell you hello. And we sit around arguing over where Babylon is. 
Don't get caught up in that stuff. There's nothing wrong with saying God hadn't showed us fully what it is. We don't know. But He also was saying to them something that makes us uncomfortable. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, i got to be honest with you. This is just Jim talking. I'm glad we don't do that as much nowadays, but it's a very cultural thing. But it's, it's more than just a greeting. See, there's a big difference between a hug and a handshake in our culture, is there not? There's a big difference between a hug and a handshake. This was greet each other more than just with the typical greeting. You know, you've seen the people do it. But they're just doing it because that's the thing. This was different. This was a more intimate type of a greeting. And he was just saying, um, your brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe are saying hi. And you know what? Say hi to each other, but don't just be cordial. Don't just be cordial. Hello, neighbor. (laughs) And if any of you try to apply that kiss of love to me tonight, let me just warn you now. (laughs) You better not be a 10th grade girl. That's right. (laughs) As we wrap up, though, I want to read the last part. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. By the way, back at the very beginning of our study in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, listen to what he said. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Folks, because of Jesus, we're all family. Wish the best for each other. Oh, and you know what the best for you and me is? An intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just that we be saved, but that we would allow Him to demonstrate His grace in whatever area and need we have. And that we would look nowhere else for that need to be met. And I can't wait to find out what He's going to teach us in 2 Peter. And I thank you so much for letting me take the time to teach you from this one. Let's pray. Father, again, we just worship You by saying thank You. And you're an awesome, good God. And we thank you for the, the many things that you pull out of just a few verses. And Lord, there's more. We could start First Peter over again in a week or two. And we could just see things we didn't see the first time through because your word is alive. But Lord, you've also been speaking to us about setting our eyes and our hearts and our minds firmly on you and your promise and your word. And that you will give us what we need. I thank you for the way in which you do that. And I pray that for everyone here that is in you, that that peace that passes understanding, that peace that is only found in you, Lord, would just fill our hearts and our minds and that we would experience what Paul prayed for us that we read about today, that we'd be rooted and established in you, Jesus, in your love, that we would actually experience the fullness of what it means to be in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.